Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 90, the first Council of Nicaea, recorded Thursday, July 7th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, short work week, you know, right after the holiday, so that's cool. How are you? Uh, very, very busy. <laughs> By the time this episode drops, I'll have gone and come back from uh, family vacation, and we're recording this episode the week right after the 4th of July, so it's been a short work week, which has been the busiest work week of the year so far. <laughs> in terms of uh, support tasks and trying to get two major product releases out the door this week and trying to prepare for this outline <laughs> and pack for vacation and all this the other stuff. The theme song of your life has been a combination of Flight of the Bumblebee and Yakety Sax played backwards and at double speed? No, it's just been under pressure constantly. Oh, okay. Well, that works too. Oh, it's a great song. It's I a play fantastic that song. When I am under pressure because it helps. <laughs> Go figure. Okay, let's get into tonight's topic, or at least tell everyone what we're talking about, which is the First Council of Nicaea. Uh, we're continuing our Historical Heresies series tonight. But before we get to that, we have our question from a random Patreon backer. Ah, uh, yes. If you back us on Patreon at $5 or more every month, you get to ask us a question, and we roll on a table of questions, answer it, and then if we pick yours... We ask you for another question. One quick um, rules update on this. Unless you are, at some point, the only backer we have, you will not be picked two weeks in a row for this. If we roll the same person that we got the previous episode, we'll roll again. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Just to keep it fair. And in fact, I'm just going to exclude him from the table this time around. So, you ready? Yep. All right, here we go. Rolling a die. Okay, so that is... Ah, a anonymous... Patron. Oh, this is number two. Uh, yes. Who asks us, what would customer service or tech support look like in your favorite RPG universes? Oh my. Oh my, indeed. Um, given that I think my favorite RPG universe is probably Shadowrun. Uh, you know, it'd look a lot like Shadowrun, honestly. It would look like corporate misery and i don't know heavily armed people with computers tech support is an easy cover for P shadow runners yeah that's true yeah i'm just here to fix the you know rattle off some incredibly long technical name person at the front desk's eyes glaze over and you're it yeah i'm pretty sure basically customer service would just be extra misery yeah yeah the whole like Customer is always right. People treat service employees poorly. Thing is not likely to get better in the Shadowrun universe. Uh, I don't know. It's pretty dystopic. I think it's miserable for both parties. The customer is always right, but we're never going to help them. Yeah. All right. What's yours? Um, boy, I'm not entirely sure what I would say my favorite RPG universe is. Possibly GURPS Technomancer? And that would be very interesting because that would be a bunch of... People using modern technology to field calls about spells gone wrong. 
Like, have you ever seen the um, the cursive cartoon where the evil sorcerer thinks it's how to summon a demon and it's actually how to summon a lemon? And there's this um, little lemon standing in the middle of the summoning circle with kind of this vacuous, pleasant grin on its face? No, I don't think I have. Well, I just described it to you. I can see it clearly in my mind's eye. Yeah, I think it would probably look a lot like that. Like, okay. why did this spell do something completely different than I was expecting it to and somebody is trying to look something up in a huge magical database? You sure it wouldn't be, oh, your computer's on the fritz, put it in the middle of this carefully drawn magical circle? Well, that would be the tech support part of things. That Fair would, enough. That would be like, you know, what they would do if you took your computer in to be fixed at a computer repair shop or, you know, the Geek Squad or wherever else you would, as an end user, take a personal computer to be fixed. Right. The customer service would be the whole phone support with spell books and magical databases thing. Fair enough. You know, uh, a lot of places, especially big companies, automatically monitor their social media feeds and turn mentions into tickets. Yeah. I can imagine something like that in a, a Technomancer game where it's, oh, somebody mentioned us on social media. Quick, cast a spell at them. Yeah. <laughs> the person's like walking around. I was like, I said something nice about this company on social media and I'm feeling stronger than usual. Why did they cast increased strength on me over the internet? This is weird. There you go. <laughs> and in Shadowrun, it's just fireball. Yeah. <laughs> Compliment, insult, general query, fireball. Pretty much. All right, so I think that handles that question. Actually, uh, hang on. Okay. <laughs> that reminds me of the, um, you know those robocalls that you get or, you know, telemarketing back in the day? Remind, uh, what's that, this back in the day? Well, uh, robocalls now, telemarketing back in the day. Yeah. Dinner time with the landline. I always wanted to invent the teleflashbang where you just push a button and a flashbang would show up in the call center. In Shadowrun Universe, that's a reality. That was a reality in our mage universe. I'm sure it was. You had magic. I'm pretty sure that's, like, one of the first things anybody who has a a system where you make spells on the fly, I'm pretty sure that's one of the things they come up with, like, Torment telemarketers? (laughs) Or just, you know, someone's communicating at me one way through a, a phone, television, radio, something like that. Something that fires back the other way. Yeah. It's pretty much always present. Well, you know, it's a universal human desire. Yeah, tell me about it. Okay, well, that's a question from our uh, random anonymous patron. He knows who he is, and he knows that he needs to send us another question. So, we're looking forward to receiving that. And again, if you want to hear your question read on the air, back us on Patreon, and we'll add you to the list once we get your question. All right, so let's get our scripture out and then get into this very... Very heavy topic. Yes, let's do that. You want to take the... uh, Tell you what, let me take Isaiah here. Okay. So this is Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? And this is John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So our topic tonight is continuation of our Historical Heresy series, uh, and we're talking about the First Council of Nicaea, which is not 
heretical, but rather a major event in this whole saga of Arianism. And it touches on two different types of heresies, and we're, we're going to talk about those as we go. But let's recap real quick. By 320 AD, there's a schism in the church over teachings championed by, if not quite originating from, as we talked about in our last episode, Arius of Alexandria. Arianism, as this heterodox tradition came to be called, insisted on the monadic nature of God the Father, not really wanting to allow any mystery into the nature of God, not wanting to allow multiple persons. It's also dealing with questions of, is the, the Son and the Father of the same substance, that sort of thing. And so they derive ideas that the Son, who became Christ, was a separate entity, begotten slash created by the Father, and the Son was the first thing created before the rest of creation, but definitely beginning at a point in time, unlike the eternal and unbegotten Father. This thus made the Father superior to the Son, and it was through the Son that the rest of creation was made. That very briefly summarizes the teachings we talked about in our last episode. So if you are just joining us, back up one and listen to episode 89. You'll, you'll kind of need that. If you are just joining us and you do not want to back up and listen to it, it is important to realize that while this sounds like the Nazi belief in the master race, it is spelled differently and is a completely different thing. Yes, this is A-R-I-A-N-ism. As opposed to A-R-Y-A-N-ism. Right, and this is a Christological problem. What is the nature of Christ? So by 320, things are kind of just getting out of hand. The church is riven by this schism. In 320 or 321 AD, St. Alexander, Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, calls a council of more than a hundred other presbyters from Egypt and Libya, and they declare Arius and his teachings anathema. Arius is driven from Alexandria shortly thereafter, ending up in Nicomedia. But his teachings don't really stay there. They have spread across the Roman Empire and beyond. There's Tremendous discord in the church at this time, and it's not all related to Arius. Uh, Constantine I, also called Constantine the Great, and Licinius fought a civil war within the empire from 321 to 324 AD after about a decade of uneasy tension, kind of a, a cold war kind of thing that went hot, as or as hot as it can get in the 300s AD. Licinius is worth reading up on. By the way, he's a man born to a peasant family, a childhood friend of the man who would become Emperor Galerius I, and a man who eventually rises to take the title Augustus of the West, as well as a ruler of the Balkans and a few other eastern parts of the Roman Empire. Constantine and Licinius together issued the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. May not have been a formal edict so much as an agreement. It granted Christianity official recognition within the Roman Empire, though not the status of state religion, which would come later under Constantine. And it followed up on Galerius I's Edict of Toleration from 311 AD, two years prior, which officially ended the persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. So Licinius is a pretty important precursor to Constantine's relationship with the church. Anyway, Constantine I has a history of interest in ecumenical affairs. After this war wraps up, Constantine sends letters to Alexander and Arius asking them to stop fighting over what he calls controversies of no importance. 
He's clearly not understanding the import of this dispute and urging these two parties to reconcile. These letters are delivered by a man named Hosius of Cordova. We need to talk about Hosius, uh, also called Osius or Osius. He was born in 256 AD. He died in either 358 or 359 AD, over a hundred years old. Gee. Yeah. That is, that is amazing for that far back. Well, and it's more amazing when you realize everything this man went through. Uh, he was the Bishop of Cordova, better known today as Cordoba, in the Andalusia region of Spain. Hosius narrowly escapes martyrdom under Maximian, and he's a major figure at the provincial Synod of Elvira in 300 or 301 AD, history's not quite sure, which produced a set of extremely severe canons dealing with a number of issues, local and general. The word canon is going to come up again, so let's talk about that real quick. Canon law is the body of ecclesiastical law and regulation that defines the government of a church and its members. It applies internally. The rules for the clergy, the rules for members of the church. Canons are the individual rules that make up canon law. This would be like statutes in a nation's laws. Uh, yeah, yeah. They are individual statutes. They're individual rulings on particular questions as well. And that's kind of the, the way that we should approach it. Because originally, canons were produced by these church councils and those in attendance and who respected the authority of that council adopted those canons for their own congregations. You can think of it as religious common law. Somebody makes a ruling, and if you respect the person or agree that they are you know, above you, and you respect this council, you adopt those. So you kind of have a, a series of these canons, but the church pretty quickly consolidated them. But it was entirely possible that these local councils would produce their own canons for their own local governance. The Synod of Elvira, and probably Hosius himself, appears to have had Novationist leanings, Novationism was a heresy following a man named Novation who opposed the readmission of Christians who had not maintained their confession of faith under persecution or threat of persecution back into the church. Basically, he did not want to admit them back into communion. Kind of an ironic uh, position for a religion based on forgiveness. Well, yes, and you'll note that the vast majority of bishops after this long period of Christian persecution under various different Roman empire emperors, especially Diocletian, they all pretty much accepted these lapsed Christians back into communion with the church. But Novation and his followers did not, and this was a very common heresy. Where It's going to come up a couple more times just in this episode, okay? But it was declared a heresy because Novation and his followers refused to submit to the authority of the Bishop of Rome over this question, splitting away from the Roman church and Roman hierarchy. The important takeaway from this is Hosius's strictness, because we're going to see that strictness echoed in the Council of Nicaea. 313 AD, the historical record shows that Hosius has become a close advisor of Constantine I and is Constantine's go-to advisor for religious questions, especially issues relating to Christianity. We have no record of how or why this happened. There's just nothing written about it. It's just a known thing, huh? It, well, we know that in 313 AD, he's present at some particular events as that person. 
he's filling that role. We don't know how he goes from 300 AD, Synod of Elvira, where he's, you know, the second person listed, so he's important. He's the Bishop of Cordoba. But we don't know how in 13 years he's the personal religious advisor to Constantine the First. Which is a shame. I'll bet that's a fascinating story. It probably is. In particular, and again, very relevant to our discussion, Hosius advises Constantine on how to deal with the Donatists, another schismatic sect, again relating to receiving into communion lapsed Christians. And in 323-324, Hosius delivers Constantine's letters to Arius and Alexander. We don't know anything about that mission, but it clearly didn't calm things down and probably couldn't have done so. So as a result, Constantine, apparently at Hosias' recommendation, calls for an ecumenical council to meet in Nicaea in the Eastertide of 325, addressing the Arian question and some other matters relating to the church. Uh, Eastertide, by the way, another fancy word for the Easter season. Constantine sends a letter inviting every one of the 1,800-plus bishops of the Christian faith within the Roman Empire to attend the council. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Even by today's standards, that's a lot of people. Back then, that was an insane amount of people. That's a lot of people to personally invite, isn't it? Uh, yes, now, it is. Nicaea was easily accessible to most of the empire, and so it was a good place to have this kind of council. In particular, the parts of the empire most readily controlled by Constantine, and which were, which had the highest density of bishops could easily get to Nicaea. Just to, by way of analogy, folks, if this were to be set in the modern United States, this would be like setting it in Chicago. There's a major airline hub here. It's centrally located. It's very easy to get to. I would actually say it's more like setting it in Virginia. Okay. Because it's easily accessed by, or maybe even New York, because it's where all the power brokers are and where all the traffic can come to. Okay. Right? That that might be a little better. Chicago's a, a good analogy, but the proximity to power is also important. Clearly you don't live in this state, but okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that the the point is well taken. Right. National um, power, right? Yeah. Virginia, Maryland, or like you said, New York. So, yeah, something like DC that. DC in particular would fit, but Yeah, well, DC is the capital, right? It That's is, Roman but... our analogy. I don't know, maybe like Philadelphia? Something like that. Anyway, delegates come in from everywhere in the Empire including as far away as Britain. And remember, Nicaea is in modern-day Turkey. Most of these delegates were Greek. Several were actually from outside the Roman Empire, notably Persia, but also elsewhere. Uh, so it wasn't just Romans who came to this, which is kind of neat. Yeah, this would, this would be like, you know, inviting everybody in the United States and having the Canadians, Australians, and South Koreans show up as well. Yeah. Now... Each delegate was permitted to bring two priests and three acolytes as attendants. And each party was permitted free travel through the empire to and from Nicaea. Lodging and travel assistance were provided as well. Lodging was completely free for the party. And all delegates were provided for, apparently pretty sumptuously, during the entire council. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it's, a, it's an imperial event, right? Still, I'm just thinking about the logistics of that. I mean... Okay, you've got you've got an ancient city. Eighteen hundred times six is what fifty four hundred? No, it would be ten thousand something. Yeah, right? well, obviously fifty four hundred would be times three. So eighteen hundred bishops aren't attending with all of their attendants, right? 
And in fact, it's a much smaller number that does attend. It's Traditionally, the count is 318 bishops. Right, but you're trying to prepare for all of them to show up. I mean, this is like the Olympics. Sure. I mean, it's a lot of people, certainly. Now, I said 318. That's the traditional number. Some records say that the number might be as low as, and this is a quote, more than 250. So roughly one in six. Uh, Yeah, about that. Still pretty good. Yeah. Now, the traditional number of 318 suggests that there were more than 1,800 people if you count all the, you know, various assistants and uh, attendants. 1,800 people involved in this council. And that's not counting imperial servants, helpers of the host church, etc. Eusebius describes an innumerable host of accompanying priests, acolytes, and deacons. It's a lot of people. It's a big gathering for this time. Now, the best guess for when informal discussions began is May 20th, 325. And I say informal discussions because there's a lot... When you have all these people there, they're going to start talking. And some people arrive before others. Constantine himself arrives June 14th, and formal sessions begin. Now, these sessions were held in the principal church of Nicaea and in the central hall of the imperial palace there, because, of course, you need big spaces to hold that many people. And the council was opened by Constantine himself. And this is a quote from the 1917 Catholic Encyclopedia describing the entry of the emperor opening the council. All right. I want you to think about the impression this made. The emperor waited until all the bishops had taken their seats before making his entry. He was clad in gold and covered with precious stones in the fashion of an oriental sovereign. A chair of gold had been made ready for him, and when he had taken his place, the bishops seated themselves. After he had been addressed in a hurried elocution, the emperor made an address in Latin, expressing his will that religious peace should be re-established. That's a pretty grandiose entry. Now, Constantine opens the council as honorary president. He assists in subsequent sessions because he is genuinely interested in this question. Religion and and Christianity in particular seems to be something he's really genuinely interested in, not just as a a political thing, but as a genuine belief. And he's genuinely interested in in the theology being debated here. Yeah, one definitely cannot say that Constantine was insincere. Right. The ecclesiastical leaders of the council definitely directed the discussion. But what's interesting is that Hosius of Cordoba was the president of the council. So you have the emperor's right-hand man leading the discussion while the emperor sits back and just says, Oh, I'm just watching and listening. Don't mind me. In full view of everyone seated in splendor. Hosius here is assisted by legates from Pope Sylvester I, St. Sylvester, as he's now known. The Pope, of course, is the Bishop of Rome, and Constantine definitely at least involved Sylvester in the council in some way, although it's very debatable how much Sylvester was actually involved in the council for various different reasons. There are a lot of other major players and voices at this council. I can't list them all and explain why they are all important, because we don't have that kind of time. This would require, like, a Dan Carlin's Hardcore History-style treatment if we were yeah, going like to do that. Yeah, like a six-hour podcast, yes. Yep. But, a few names to note. First, Arius of Alexandria. He's there in person. He's presenting his beliefs, defending his views throughout the council, uh, or at least the first several days of the council before a decision is reached about him. The three patriarchs 
of the church, bishops in particularly important cities who are raised above others. They, patriarch is an official role, like right under Pope. It's not quite cardinal at this time. They don't really have cardinals, but it's a very important bishop. Uh, these are St. Alexander of Alexandria, who you remember had convened a council in Alexandria and declared Arius and his teachings anathema. Important to note, too, that one of Alexander's attendants was St. Athanasius, who would spend most of his life battling Arianism and earn himself the title in his lifetime, Father of Orthodoxy. Athanasius is one of the major defenders of the Orthodox faith. Uh, the other two patriarchs are Eustathius of Antioch and Macarius of Jerusalem. Eusebius of Nicomedia is here. Eusebius is going to be a major player the next time we talk about this. He's the guy who takes Arius in. He seems to back Arius at this council, although he kind of backs away from it towards the end, uh, signs the creed, as we'll talk about. But after Table's turn later on, he kind of slips back into this Arian mold. And then there's Eusebius of Caesarea, who's one of the major historians of, of this meeting and is often called the first church historian due to his notes on the council. It is very probable that Nicholas of Myra, who we better know as St. Nicholas, root of the Santa Claus legend, was also in attendance. He was Bishop of Myra. There are dozens of other relevant names. Uh, if you go and look at them up on uh, Wikipedia, if you look up the first Council of Nicaea, look at those names. Every one of them is hyperlinked. Every one of them is interesting. So let's talk about the business of the council. First and foremost, Arianism. There is no record of the theological debate about Arianism. None survives, and it's not entirely clear that any was ever attempted. This is not a time when people are going to be taking stenographic notes. Right. Sources only say that daily sessions were held, and that Arius was often summoned to those sessions. His opinions were seriously discussed, and arguments for and against his positions carefully considered. Uh, by some accounts, many bishops were originally in favor of something akin to Arianism. But between Hosias' role as president to kind of lead the debate, the presence of the emperor who was very anti-Aryan, politicking of some, to some well, degree. and not only anti-Aryan, but very imposing. I mean, that entrance is just like, I am here. Right. And of course, that continues through the debate. Right. But there is honest debate about these issues. And, you know, sources say that when Arius' teachings were read, many of the bishops who kind of had been leaning that way turned against him because they didn't want to go as far as him. Then there's the Miletian Schism. Miletius of Lycopolis was the bishop of Lycopolis, and he split from Rome and most everyone else on, again, this question of bringing lapsed Christians back into the church after they had renounced their faith under persecution. Man, these old school people were harsh. Well, m these schismatics were. That's the key thing. You know, these people who'd made their name on this question, most of the other bishops and the general opinion of the church was not. And that's why these were considered heterodox beliefs. Right. Everybody else was like, dude, you are harsh. Stop. <laughs> right. Another question brought up before the council and debated at the council was the date of the celebration of Easter. And then there were various matters of church discipline. So let's talk about the results. All right. Arius. After five, six days of debate and discussion, he is exiled to Illyria, and Constantine issues an edict banning Arianism. And this is his, his edict, or at least part of it. 
If any writing composed by Arius should be found, it should be handed over to the flames, so that not only will the wickedness of his teaching be obliterated, but nothing will be left even to remind anyone of him. And I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden the writing composed by Arius, and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. As soon as he is discovered in this offense, he shall be submitted for capital punishment. Not a lot of wiggle room in that one. No. And, in fact, Constantine issues an edict basically saying, if anybody supports Arius, you're exiled with him. Do we have any sense of how many people got executed under this? Uh, We're going to talk about that later. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But as for exile, only two bishops of these 318 back Arius in the end. Gee, I can't imagine why, regardless of what you actually felt with something like that hanging over your head. And that's one of the things that modern scholars kind of hold up and say, you know, a lot of people may have been leaning towards Arianism, or at least more than actually signed it, but the presence of the emperor and kind of the way it was structured made it very difficult for these church fathers to back Arianism in any real way. Having said that, Arius is definitely in the minority, even from the get-go. At the start of the uh, session, only 22 bishops support him in any way, shape, or form. Which is less than 10%, no matter which count you use. Right. Now, what comes out of this, and this is really the thing that I think we are most familiar with, aside from a general affirmation of the Trinity, is a specific affirmation of the Trinity known today as the Nicene Creed. And this was issued on June 19th. So, remember, it started on the 14th. This is issued on the 19th. The Nicene Creed is the most ecumenical of creeds. It's affirmed by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, most Protestant churches. It's very widely accepted and affirmed. Yeah. Modern scholarship believes this creed is mostly derived from the baptismal creed of Jerusalem. Some of you might remember that when we first started this historical heresy series, we talked about creeds as a sort of identifying statement for a church. Right When you are baptized, many churches, because there were so many differences in belief in the very early church, had creeds that said, okay, look, this is a statement that we want you to say and affirm so that we all are believing the same thing within this church. And the Nicene Creed becomes the first creed for the whole church under the authority of Rome. And again, it's drawn from that baptismal creed of Jerusalem. As formulated in 325... Translated into English from Greek, it reads like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth. Who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, and in the Holy Ghost. But those who say, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance, or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable, or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Now, that last bit, starting with, but those who say there was a time when he was not, 
was removed when the creed was revised by the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. And this, this creed from 381 is the more familiar form of the Nicene Creed. Uh, I've got a translation of this that I pulled from the PCUSA 2014 Book of Confessions. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy and Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You'll note that this is somewhat different, but the creed in general focuses on the nature of God and the Son of God. Yeah. Right? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. These are actually technical terms in Greek, debates of substance and essence, that sort of thing. This is one of those things where you lose something of the original language by translating it into English. Well, without the historical context of this debate, you lose some of that, although the poetry is certainly still present. Yeah, yeah, whoever did the translation certainly was very good at that. Yeah. Now, one other thing to note, right there towards the end, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Proceeds from the Father and the Son is not present in most orthodox versions of this creed. It's only proceeds from the Father. And that is due to a debate about the nature of the Holy Spirit that still persists to this day. <laughs> so let's not think that we're all done with this, all right? <laughs> well, at least this time nobody is likely to be exiled or put under penalty of death for talking about it. So that's Most progress. likely, unless you live in certain parts of the world, yes. Yeah. All right, so that's the Nicene Creed. Ultimately, you know, we're talking about the nature of God, Godhood. Um, if you hear the Godhead, that's a Middle Ages form of Godhood. And that's ultimately what this creed is declaring. This is the nature of God. And this is a formalization, although not using the word, of the Trinity of God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, three in one. Right. And it is a mystery. The Orthodox Church focuses a little more on the unified mystery of God. Western churches tend to focus a little more on the three separate parts. But we all take a Trinitarian view of God and believe that that is the nature of God. Yeah. So, some other business that was attended to. The Miletians. Uh, you remember them. The council actually tried to reconcile with Miletius and his schismatic Church of the Martyrs. They wrote him a letter basically saying, look, you can stay bishop, just stop appointing other bishops in other places. Well, this was rejected, and the Miletians remained a separate sect until the 5th century, backing the Arians in their controversy, which we'll talk about next time. Or, well, next time we do a historical heresies episode, whenever that may be. 
Uh, the last thing that comes out of this, uh, you remember I said that there were uh, various questions about church discipline. Right. Well, those produce what are called the 20 canons. Remember we talked about canons and I said it was important? Well, this is yep. where they come in. Uh, let, let's go over these canons real quick because the variety is pretty interesting. Some of these relate to Arianism. Some of these relate to other heresies, but most are really just questions of what the clergy and the body of the church should do in certain situations. Canon one, on the admission or support or expulsion of clerics mutilated by choice or by violence. Okay, stop right there for a second. Is this about circumcision? No, it's okay. about persecution uh, and self-mutilation. Right, and self-mutilation, right? Okay, so things like flagellation and stuff? Things like that. Um, it is traditionally believed that a number of the bishops who came to the Council of Nicaea had serious scarring on their faces from torture under Diocletian, Maximian, and other Roman emperors who persecuted the church. And so they, you know, they wore their arguments against Arius on their faces, as one author described it. Okay. That's kind of what they're talking about. But also, what happens if somebody is badly injured? Things like that. Canon 2. Rules to be observed for ordination. The avoidance of undue haste. The deposition of those guilty of a grave fault. Eh, fair enough. Yeah. Canon 3. All members of the clergy are forbidden to dwell with any woman except a mother, sister, or aunt. Yeah, this didn't survive the Reformation. No, but, it, you know, in the, the Catholic Church, it's don't live with a woman who you're not related to. And, you know, it reinforces that idea of a celibate clergy. Yep. Canon 4. Concerning Episcopal Elections. Well, okay, simple enough. Canon 5. Concerning the Excommunicate. Again, we're, we're coming back to what do we do with people who have been kicked out of the church for one reason or another. Yep. Canon 6, concerning patriarchs and their jurisdiction. Canon 7, confirming the right of the bishops of Jerusalem to enjoy certain honors. Jerusalem is an important city in the Christian tradition for obvious reasons. It makes sense that they get certain honors, right? At least according to the, the early yeah. church. Uh, canon 8, concerning the Novatians. Again, we're back to that question of Novatius. Canon 9. Certain sins known after ordination involve invalidation. So basically, we ordain someone and then we discover certain sins. What, what do we do? Canon 10. Lapsi, or lapsi, I'm not certain about pronunciation, who have been ordained knowingly or surreptitiously must be excluded as soon as their irregularity is known. Uh, lapsi, lapsi again, <laughs> pronunciation, is a term for those who have lapsed, in particular under persecution, but basically uh, lapsed Christians. Okay. Canon 11. Penance to be imposed on apostates of the persecution of Licinius. So, again, Licinius, at war with Constantine, persecuted Christians. That same question of what do people who, who left the church or refused to confess their faith under persecution or threat of persecution, what do we do with them? And this is a penance imposed on them so that they would be readmitted. Canon 12, penance to be imposed on those who upheld Licinius in his war on the Christians. Similar sort of question. <laughs> I'll bet that was a little heavier. Well, probably. Canon 13, indulgence to be granted to excommunicated persons in danger of death. Canon 14, penance to be imposed on catechumens who had weakened under persecution. Again, that same issue. 
Canon 15, bishops, priests, and deacons are not to pass from one church to another. Canon 16, all clerics are forbidden to leave their church. Formal prohibition for bishops to ordain for their diocese a cleric belonging to another diocese. This essentially was kind of a, an issue of poaching. Yeah, I was going to say, was there a lot of clergy poaching going on in those well, days? There was, um, but it it also comes back to this Christological debate because people would kind of find other places where they could get uh, ordained and and that sort of thing. There was some some back and forth on that front. But ultimately it's, hey, don't poach in each other's territory. Canon 17, clerics are forbidden to lend at interest. Okay. Canon 18, uh, Canon 18 recalls to deacons their subordinate position with regard to priests. In other words, priests are above the deacons in a church. Kind of establishing the org chart here. Yeah, pretty much. Canon 19, rules to be observed with regard to adherence of Paul of Samosata, who we talked about last episode, who wished to return to the church. Canon 20, on Sundays and during the Paschal or Easter season, prayers should be said standing. Okay. And that's the 20 canons. Interesting mix, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Not grouped in any particular way, really. Well, most of the stuff about persecution is kind of clumped up together in the middle, but yeah, the rest of it is scattershot. <laughs> it is, because it's basically, hey, here are a bunch of questions. What do we do with them? Well, and it's interesting, it seems like they came with, like, two big agendas. Like, we've got this this heterodox belief system that we need to figure out what to do with, and we've got all these people that were horribly persecuted. Some of them are in this room. We need to deal with these things, and it seems like, then they were like, you know, while we're all here in one place, maybe we should deal with some of this stuff that's kind of been causing problems, too? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of it, is... So, does anyone have anything else? And, you know, you ever been in a meeting that goes on for, like... Yeah, hands just go up everywhere. 30 minutes like, extra because, oh, oh, I got this one little thing. I got this one little thing. It's sort of like that, but writ large and becoming canon law. Hey, at least everybody had nice accommodations. Uh, the other thing that happened, of course, was decisions on Easter. It was not especially specific, but it was decided that Easter should be separated from the Jewish calendar, so not adhering to the date of Passover anymore. If you've ever wondered, by the way, you know, the Bible clearly says that Jesus was arrested on Passover and brought to the cross the next day. Why don't we celebrate Easter right after Passover? Well, this is why. It was separated from the Jewish calendar, and it was decided that Easter should be celebrated uniformly worldwide by the church. Which is something that does persist to this day. At least well, <laughs> mostly. I think the Orthodox have a different date, don't they? Uh, they do, and and several other churches also do. It's, it's okay, complicated. Okay, so in the Western world, this, <laughs> this mostly applies today. Right, the biggest split is Eastern and Western. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, there has been an ongoing process to try and reconcile that, and supposedly uh, the Pope has made some progress on that. <laughs> with at least some patriarchs of the Orthodox churches. So, hey, maybe we're finally getting that sorted out. If it's going to get sorted out, I have a feeling that the current Pope is the one to do it. So. Yeah, it only took 1,700 years, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not overdue or anything. <laughs> well, let's be honest, that's not a lot of time in church years. No. So I said that debate on Arius and Arianism ended June 19th. By August, 
These other matters are resolved, and on August 25th, 325 AD, the council is officially concluded and sessions end. So everything's solved, right? Oh, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) There's about a hundred years of schism, debate, exile, excommunication, factionalism, heresy, and more coming up for us to talk about later. But that's the Council of Nicaea. But hey, at least good news. We've got good material for the podcast based on all of this suffering and debate and craziness. Yes, we do. All of that having been said, let's stop here in our history lesson and talk about gaming ideas that can come out of the Council of Nicaea and everything that kind of led up to it. First thing that comes to mind for me is this idea of what do we do with lapsed believers who denied their faith when it was inconvenient? Okay. It's kind of on the nose, right? This is not an allegorical question. This is, hey, here's this question just in a different setting. Yeah, this isn't so much a simile as a metaphor. Uh, it's, it's pretty much just Mad Lib. But it is still a valid question in those settings, assuming it's not a, a, a setting where, you know, it's pantheism so animus that there's nothing to deny. If you've got a faith that requires affirmation and confession, whatever that is, then what do you do with people who denied it under duress? Yeah, yeah. Like you, like you said, if you've got heavy-duty animism that's kind of so true that if you deny the fox spirit is there, it will bite you in the ankle, this doesn't really work. It's not so much something we have to be creative about as a really good question to bring up in-game. Yeah, to, to use a specific example, because... I'm thinking about D&D because we're going to be doing that soon. In the Eberron setting, this would probably be a legitimate concern for the Church of the Silver Flame. Yes, and possibly also uh, the host. Sovereign host. host. Yes. And honestly, maybe even the Blood of Vol. Yeah, could be. Should there be some consequence? Or has, has this been enough of a consequence? Yeah. You know? Can we forgive that and move forward? Obviously, the big gaming opportunity here is a grand ecumenical council. Oh, yeah. All right, so the obvious one is there's a huge event in town. How does the town react? And think about, like, okay, to use a very gaming-specific example, the entire city of Indianapolis basically gets turned on its head every year when Gen Con comes to town. Well, imagine if instead of it being a gaming convention, it was a massive ecumenical council. So you've got all of this clergy wandering around, in a fantasy setting, some of them, perhaps all of them, may have all of this magical power in addition to all of their clerical authority. You know, you could have, depending on the specific setting, you could have anything from just long lines everywhere, all the lodging taken up, and that sort of thing, to people slinging, like, lightning bolts and stuff at each other in the street as debate, quote-unquote, spills out from the council hall when somebody says, let's take this outside. I right. mean, if you've got... if you've if it's the um, clergy of the storm god that are debating, the weather could get a little nasty in town for a while. Yeah, it definitely could. And of course, imagine if this this council, instead of being a three, four-day convention, lasts two or three months. Like the Council of Nicaea did, yeah. Yeah. Now, some of that has to do with logistics. Depending sure. on your setting, it may be feasible to have people come and go quickly. But if you have a lot of things to talk about, it may be a couple months worth of meetings. And well, that changes things because it's not, oh, let me get a room at the inn. It's let me find several months worth of lodgings. 
yeah, how do how do I set up here? And that in and of itself can make for interesting adventure context. Do you get sponsored by local nobility and put up in a castle someplace? Do you have to depend on the generosity of the faithful and you're carrying your belongings on your back and sleeping in a different house every night? Yeah. Something in between is, you know, is there a major political figure like Constantine putting everybody up, but you take those lodgings and know that you might not have as much privacy as you'd like? You know, yeah. The walls may have ears. Is he putting certain people up whom he supports? Yeah. What's going on? Uh, what do you do with somebody who doesn't have a lot of means? Uh, one of the folks that I didn't mention in attendance was a bishop who, despite being the bishop of a major city, still worked as a shepherd. There was another one who was a hermit. What do you do with those people when they come to town? You know, yeah. they're interesting edge cases. There's a lot to talk about there. And what happens when somebody does something to disturb the peace? Not just, you know, lightning bolts, but a, a civil crime. Yeah, or even just loud arguments or something. Sure. It's a big event. I mean, you can just let your imagination run wild, but think just the logistics are massive. You know, you probably don't have to worry about wandering monsters approaching if this is a gathering of D&D clerics. No, especially not undead. But if it's a, a setting where these are just legitimate religious figures, they are priests, not spellcasting warriors, well, it's very different. You know, what do you do to protect them if something goes wrong? What happens if there's a flood and some of them, you know, get hurt or get washed away and die? Or what happens if there's an attack on the city while this is happening? I mean, if you were some outside power and you had an army in the area, this would be an awfully tempting target. Right. Oh, look, all these important people. I could have hostages for days. Sure. Uh, what happens if, and you know, this is to take the event a little bit away from the action, the Emperor's off dealing with this cool council going on. There's a coup back in Rome. Yeah. What happens now? So it's a big opportunity for all sorts of storytelling is what we're saying. And then there's um, then there's also just kind of the general questions of the people in attendance. Who's invited? Who's required to be there? Who can't be there? What happens if somebody important is missing or goes missing? What impact do the decisions that this thing have on the faithful, on the faith's relation to other related sects? Like, um, if this was a Catholic thing in the modern world, what effect would it have on Protestantism? What effect would it have on Judaism, which is kind of an ancestor faith? Yeah. Uh, what kind of effects will these have on daily life and practice? I mean, the Council of Nicaea set the dates for Easter. That's a thing that affects the faithful. You know, they celebrate this holiday on a at a certain time. Maybe now they're celebrating it at a different time. How do they feel about that? How do they react to that? Well, I remember they're uh, holding the council in the central hall of the local palace and the main church in Nicaea. Yep. Those are disruptive places to have large gatherings. Yeah. What happens to all the normal government business? What happens to all the normal religious ceremonies? And, of course, we haven't talked at all about the politicking that can go on within the council. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, that's novels right there. You could write novels based just on that scenario. It would be an interesting novel, too. Yes. Some some uh, low fantasy setting with a huge, like, ecclesiarchal conference going? Oh, that could well, be... Well, David Eddings actually did that in uh, his Sparhawk novels, the third book. 
Oh, yeah, I remember a little bit about that. It's been so long since I've read those. Yeah, it was a different debate, but it's a big gathering of important religious figures, all the patriarchs, to nominate a successor after the pope, basically, dies. Yeah. As well as deal with some other questions. It's it's an interesting scene, and there's a lot of that politicking. Okay, hey, you know, this particular party is throwing bribes around, and this particular party has kidnapped some of the patriarchs so that they can't vote, changing the math of votes and that sort of thing. Because nothing makes people behave like they don't believe what they say they do, like having some stakes on the line. Right, but in this case it's just, hey, we're going to keep them hidden and kidnapped until after the votes, so that their votes don't count. Yeah. Uh, David Eddings is pretty generic fantasy, but it's well-written generic fantasy, so eh, worth reading if you want something light and fun he has a very good writing style. He does. It's very readable, and it's very humorous. I like that. Yeah, he's he's lighter than a lot of... A lot. He's not George R. R. Martin. He's not no. Joe Abercrombie. He's not Terry Goodkind. His, his stuff is light and easy to read, and for the most part, I would say friendly for children over the age of about 12 or so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, once you've read a David Edding series, you have read the plot for the other series. He's very repetitive in that sense. But that's kind of okay, because he's using yeah. that same framework to hang characters on, and it's the characters that make it fun. So Yeah, and it gives you a good idea of what to expect, too. So yeah, don't expect high literature, but it is fun and worth a read. Anyway, another thing that can come out of this, gaming ideas. New ecclesiastical laws. What if your cleric gets notified of certain changes? Yeah, what do you mean I can't carry a sword anymore? Right. Oh, hey, um, we pray for our spells at a different time of day now. 2.37? That's the middle of the adventuring day. I, I'm in the middle of something here. Can it Can it wait? Yeah. A good GM will say, hey, there's a new law, and it directly conflicts with one of your character flaws. Or one of your character strengths. Yeah. Not just a, a statistical thing, but something you've defined as an aspect of your character's behavior and personality. To go back to the sword thing for just a moment, let's say you've got one of those D&D clerics that's basically a fighter that can cast spells. Sure. Well, okay, now the prohibition against edged weapons has come down, and he was used to using a sword. It's like, but I've taken all these feats. I know how to... I'm a, an accomplished swordsman. This is something that I do. You know, this is how I fight against the evil that is plaguing the land. I, what do you mean I can't do this anymore? Right, and I would say that's actually a bad idea, because that basically says, hey... All that investment you've put into your character in terms of experience and, you know, decisions. If you don't let them retcon it somehow, like we've talked about in previous episodes, yes, I agree. That is hosing the player without cause. Right. If you can bring yourself to allow your characters to go back and change, then it becomes eh. interesting. And it also helps if you get the consent from the player ahead of time. Right. It's not good to hose people without talking it over first. But that's GMing right. 101. But I still think it is better to avoid mechanics and focus on aspects of the character that are personality-based. Yeah, definitely. I, but I but there is some room for both, I would say. Sure. Uh, you could probably get a little mileage out of dates for Holy Days, but I think the other big takeaway is a political religious advisor like Hosius. Yes. There's a lot that you can do with a character like that who... Has one foot in the political world and one foot in the ecclesiarchal world. Yeah, that's a great way to describe him. And who is a well-respected clergyman. And possibly right? even a little feared. 
Sure. I mean, Hosius himself was a stern guy. Yeah. It's a, a good character that I think you can get a lot of mileage out of. And, you know, somebody who lives to 100, that's just pretty cool on their own. Yeah, that's, that's neat all by itself. I, I think I want to call this here. Next time we do a historical heresies episode, and I don't know if that's going to be the next episode or not. Probably not. We've got other stuff we want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and at some point we need to have our Patreon backers at a certain level vote on a topic for us. But I'm going to talk about the spread of Arianism, the post-Nicaea conflicts that arise after Constantine, because the next emperor after Constantine is an Arian. <laughs> Just to make things interesting. Yeah, and we start getting mass excommunications and exiles, and everything kind of goes crazy for a while. Also, we get to talk about semi-Arianism, and that's just hilarious. So be looking forward to that. Yes. Now, if you like what we do here, whether it be a rough outline of history or crazy discussions of tech support, whatever it may be, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, share us around on social media, rate and review us on iTunes and, you know, any other platform you prefer. It just generally get the word out about us. And if you really like what we do and want to make sure that we keep doing it and do it well, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash saving the game. Uh, We are online at stgcast.org. If this is your first time listening to us, check us out there. Peter writes really good blog posts every week that there isn't an episode, so you make sure to read those. They're really, really fascinating, and Peter's knocked it out of the park the past couple of weeks. So, from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.